what actually happened was we were here for the two years and we were in a Harvest Church service when Joel, and I looked over and Joel, who was at the time, was what? Four or five. He had the sports page of the new Sentinel open. And he said, Dad, look, the Nuggets beat the Warriors 102. To, and I turned to Shelly and said, he's going to be a sports broadcaster. And he did. Hallelujah. So good to be at Harvest Church this morning. What a blessing to see your faces. We look forward to this. I've been traveling a lot. You know you're traveling a lot when you see your face on a milk carton. Sometimes it takes me five minutes to remember what city I'm in. <laughs> but it's great to be at Harvest. When, when it was scheduled, I was looking forward to our being here. We always love being at Harvest. Uh, during worship this morning, I was mindful of something that I think I've shared here before, but maybe for some of you who have not heard this. Uh, it's the great Christmas text. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. If you translate that from Hebrew into English, the best way to translate that is his name shall be called Surprise. But the translators didn't have the guts to do that. They gave us wonderful, but I like surprise. Because how many know the moment you think you know him, you are utterly surprised to discover how much more of this Christ there is to explore. And you stand there and you are utterly surprised at the greatness of the Son of God, the stature, the incredibleness of the Son of God. So this morning I hope that you will discover with me again and be surprised all over again at how great our God is. Amen. Shelley and I have had a great year. We've uh, experienced two things this year. One actually was December of last year. We had our first grandchild. And, uh, Emma was born in December of 2021, and she's uh, Emma Violet Silverberg. We waited a long time. I'm 69. I'll be 70 in January, and uh, I forgot how old Shelly is. I can't remember. Good <laughs> 50. But uh, Emma said her first word recently. We drew near. We knew she was going to say something, and it was clear as a bell. She said, "Trust fund." <laughs> Incredibly clear. The other thing that happened is I was instructed by the Lord. I was helping John Cook. Some of you know John. He's pastor of Harvest Outreach in White Pine, Tennessee. And I was helping him prepare his church for his sabbatical, which he took soon after that, when the Holy Spirit whispered to me and said, I'm going to call you to this. And so when January came of this new year, I felt that I needed to, to, uh, to actually commit to the word I had heard. And I took the whole summer off from May 11th to, to August 1st. And I, I did nothing but walk with Jesus and had a wonderful time. Thank you if you knew about it and prayed for me. A lot of people were praying. And it's a gift to be able to uh, read the Word of God without looking for sermon material. Read the Word of God to feed your own soul. And that was what I did. So it was great. And thank you for praying for me at that time. Turn with me in your Bible. By the way, I brought some books which... You can read my books. If not, just get Tim's primer on grace, which is wonderful. I'm reading it. And, uh, but I brought two of my five books, three of my five books. I don't have it up here. But uh, New Covenant Life was a book that I wrote on Jeremiah 31, the covenant, the great prophecy of the New Covenant, the Brit Hadashah in Hebrew. 
that God said, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with them when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they broke. This is the covenant I will make with them in those days. I will put my law on their inward parts and write it on their hearts. And they shall no longer say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. You know, the, fo the focal point of the new covenant is the knowledge of God that's given to us. He says, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and remember their sins no more. This book, written in, I think, 2018, explores that prophecy, New Covenant Life. And then this is my latest book, which came out in uh, December of last year as well. And it was, it's a Shadow and Substance, The Truth About Jewish Roots and Christian Believers. This is a book that I wrote dealing with the Jewish Roots Movement. You know, it's true that the roots of our faith go deep into Judaism. That's a true statement. But much of what's being taught today in the land about Jewish roots is error and has gone too far in actually calling men and women back to uh, living under the Old Covenant. This book deals with that. It's a good primer if you don't know a lot about the Jewish roots of Christianity. It, I, I talk about the, the positive aspect of that, but also warn against the dangers. So you can uh, visit the table and, and the way out in the foyer. And Shelly uh, is now traveling with me some, and she has the ability to swipe your credit card. So we've come into the 21st century. Yeah, she has the swiping revelation. Okay, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3. I know this is a passage that you're familiar with because Tim's preached from it much, but I want to visit it again. And I want to particularly visit one aspect of it. I'm in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. We're in the middle of a thought here. For time, we'll do that. And we'll read into chapter 4, verse 1. But the focus point of my message this morning, which is entitled, The Spirit is Lord. And I want to highlight that from 2 Corinthians 3, 17. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Say amen. amen. How many are glad we have freedom yes. by the Spirit of the Lord? Yes. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Let's read again 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Father, we thank You for the freedom which the Spirit of God has brought into our lives through the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant. Thank You, Father, for giving us a New Covenant that the Spirit of God has written the law of God on our hearts. I pray that the freedom which is promised in this verse, would become fully operative in all your children. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. It's not difficult to detect if you look carefully that for the most part, the modern Western church has lost the militancy of the kingdom. Church life has been reduced to a succession of Sundays, for which the world gives us tax write-offs and doesn't bat an eye. But 
I believe the reason we've lost the militancy of the kingdom is we've lost the militancy of the Spirit. We've lost the militancy of the Spirit. Therefore, I believe it is vital that we be reintroduced to the militancy of the Spirit. Now, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I was saved in November of 2000, uh, 1971, dynamited into the kingdom of God by a Jesus I wasn't looking for. My brother was a drug addict, came to faith, was instantaneously delivered of addiction with no withdrawals and began talking to me about Jesus. I ran for a year and a half and then he cornered me in Miami, Florida in 1971 and I still haven't recovered. People, my testimony is different. People's testimony is, I was messed up, I came to Jesus, I'm fine. Mine was, I was fine, I came to Jesus, I'm so messed up. How many are glad to be messed up for Jesus? It's true. And after I came to faith that night, I joined my first church experience. My brother and two other ministers had uh, planted a church in the heart of Jewish Miami Beach. And it was a Pentecostal church. And I grew up learning much about the, the fullness of the Spirit. In fact, I remember a few weeks after I was saved, I was on the beach. And my, we had a service on the beach. I don't know why we were at the beach. I can't remember. But I was, my pastor came up to me and said, do you want to receive the Holy Ghost? And I got afraid because the only ghost I knew was Casper. And I said, who? He said, would you like to receive the Holy Ghost? And I said, sure, I want everything God has for me. And they laid hands on me and I began to speak with other tongues. And from that moment on, I've enjoyed life in the Spirit. And I learned a lot of things. Some of those things remain with me to that day. But one of the things I learned has proven not to be true. My pastor or someone told me, that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman and he'll never ask you to do anything that would make you uncomfortable. <laughs> that was told to me. It was one of the tenets of our faith about the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit's a gentleman and he'll never ask you to do anything you won't make you comfortable. Eventually, both Scripture and my own experience prove both of those to be completely wrong. Now, if we want to learn about the Spirit, eventually we're going to park in 2 Corinthians 3. I know Tim's been there because it's one of the primary uh, teachings in Scripture regarding the nature of the New Covenant. And this is the most uh, personal letter that Paul ever wrote. He wrote several letters where he gets personal, but this letter is totally personal. There, and within it is shards of theology couched in personal testimony. And the reason it's personal is... The apostle in this letter is having to defend his ministry against the attack from what he calls false apostles, or he actually calls them later in chapter 10, super apostles. Super apostles. And their aim was to plant seeds of doubt in the Corinthians' minds about Paul. And they did so by presenting letters that they had received from the Jerusalem church that uh, the big guys, you know, Paul, Peter, James, John, those guys had apparently written letters, or maybe it was James, the, the lead brother, who wrote a letter uh, affirming that these guys are authorized to preach the gospel. And, and when they came, they said, by the way, did Paul ever show you letters that he had? And they said, no. He said, why not? 
Maybe it's because he didn't have letters. Maybe he's not approved. And Paul addresses that and says in 2 Corinthians 3 later, do we need as some do letters of commendation to you or from you? And he tells the Corinthians he didn't need letters for the simple reason the Corinthian church was God's letter. He says, you show that you're a letter delivered by Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. For Paul, this is the essence of the New Covenant. The essence of the New Covenant as opposed to the Old Covenant. Now under the Old Covenant, you know this text, the, the, the law is written where? It's not written on hearts, it's written on stone tablets. And Paul refers to it as the ministry of condemnation. That's what legalism is. It's a ministry of condemnation. And Paul says it, it was that because it tells men and women how they should live, but it doesn't impart life. It couldn't change them. It had no power to do so. All it could do was condemn them since under the old covenant, uh, no one could meet the conditions that were required. That's why God saw fit to bring us a new covenant, a Britadashah, uh, where the promise, the conditions of the old now become the promises of the new. Think about that. The conditions of the old are the promises of the new. And the new covenant is a glorious covenant because it changes men and women inwardly. Not outwardly, but inwardly. And that's why for Paul, the ministry of the Spirit which accompanies the new covenant is a living thing. Now, I want to clarify this by looking more thoroughly at verse 17. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There are three parts to that statement. But in this message, I want to look more closely at part number two. We'll get to it in a minute. But the first one is a declarative statement. Paul says, the Lord is the Spirit. And at first glance, we might be tempted to think that Paul's got his members of the Godhead mixed up. The Lord is not the Spirit, Paul. The Lord is the Lord, and the Spirit is the Spirit. But what Paul is not confused about the members of the Godhead, uh, it's because the Lord was exalted into the life of the Spirit when Jesus came, was ascended to the throne. And he says uh, that the Lord becomes a life-giving Spirit. So he doesn't have his Godhead members mixed up. He knows exactly who they are. Now... The second statement is where I want to park. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is. But I found a translation. I can't remember which it is. But I found a translation. It's the only one I've ever read that changes that slightly and says it this way. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit is Lord, there is freedom. Are you breathing? The second part is not a statement of fact but a conditional statement. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit is Lord, there is freedom. It goes without saying that the Spirit is Lord, but how many know in the church especially, He's not often treated as Lord? Are you breathing? In other words, where He's given His rightful place, freedom can be enjoyed and expected. Wherever the Lord is, Spirit is Lord. Just taking a glance at the church today, we, we recognize 
that we've not given place in the church to the Holy Spirit that we should. Gordon Fee in his classic work, Paul, the Spirit, and the People of God. It's a scholarly work, but it's worth the read. He says this, one reads Paul poorly who does not recognize that for Paul, the presence of the Spirit as an experienced and living reality was the crucial matter for Christian life from beginning to end. And later in the book, he says this, it's fair to say that Paul's entire theology without the supporting pinion of the Spirit would crumble into ruins. So we can agree with Paul that everything Jesus Christ accomplished is made real to us and to the believer by the power of the Spirit. Where the Spirit is Lord, there is freedom. And Paul, in fact, in Romans 7, talks about the struggle living life under the law. And he says it was a life of constant failure. But where was the answer? In Romans 8, Paul highlights the answer. And he says, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, I want to park in this third section for the remainder of the message. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit is Lord, we can expect freedom to exist. Consulting the lexicon, we learn there's two aspects to that idea of freedom that Paul hits on. One is, which I know you know, but it's important to visit it. The first aspect is unpacked in Romans 8.10 where Paul says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And Paul has taught throughout the Roman epistle that righteousness is imputed to believers by faith in Jesus Christ. We are made perfectly righteous. You know, justification is often described as just as if I had never sinned. But it goes further than that. It's just as if I had always obeyed. And people don't get that right. They stop with the good news. And it is good news that just as if I had always uh, sinned. Just as if, uh, but the other one is equally true. Just as if I had always obeyed. Why? Because his active obedience, Jesus as a Jew came into this world, lived under the law, and under the law he was perfect. And his righteousness was not an imputed righteousness. He was, in fact, he did, in fact, attain a perfect righteousness. And then he puts that in your account and mine when we believe the gospel. Think about how good that is. This corresponds to his earlier thought that the presence of the Spirit in the heart produces a desire for righteousness. In this regard, it is a freedom not to do as one pleases, but as one desires. The miracle is, I desire to be righteous under the new covenant. I don't have to force myself. It's natural. I want to be righteous. Right? Now, this outlines how the Spirit causes us to walk in His statutes. But there's a second aspect to this freedom that I want to talk about. It's the freedom to follow the Lord fully 
without laying aside sacred tradition. The freedom to follow the Lord fully, laying aside sacred tradition. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, where the Spirit is Lord, we often find out how much in bondage we are. Because following the Spirit, how many know, can be dangerous. Yes. Following the Spirit can be dangerous. So much for what I learned in my first church experience, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, and I'll never tempt you to, to do anything that would make you uncomfortable. Like, tell the Apostle Peter that. He's doing his thing, being a Jewish Apostle, minding his own business, goes up on a rooftop to pray in the city of Joppa, and while he's praying, all of a sudden, a sheet falls from heaven filled with bacon bits and ham hocks and <laughs> things I've never eaten. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and remember that up to this time, Peter and his fellow apostles are only ministering the gospel to Jews. They don't understand yet that the gospel has a universal scope and it's going to be uh, reach out to Gentiles. They should have known that because how many know Jesus made it clear when he went and visited a Roman or spoke a word of healing to a Roman centurion, went to a woman whose daughter was demon possessed and said, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. And she said, yes, but the dogs eat the crumbs under the table. Jesus demonstrated on several occasions that he was going to call the Gentiles into his bride. And Peter, his whole life, has been trained not to believe that Gentiles are going to be in the kingdom. It was not open to the Gentiles. And Peter believed that. His entire life meant that he had nothing to do with Gentiles. Even after the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, he actually still believed that Jews alone who would receive the good news of the Messianic Kingdom. But now God is going to do a new thing. And he's got to get Peter on board. So while Peter's praying, the sheep comes down. Of course, God isn't telling Peter, you can now eat unclean foods, although that certainly is true. But he was talking to them, what I've called clean, do not call unclean. Do not call uncommon what I've called unkind. And while this happens three times, and Peter, being a good Jew, rebuked each one. He said, I know this is a trick from the enemy. While he's, at, while he's sitting there trying to ascertain the meaning of the vision, remembering that the Holy Spirit's a gentleman and will never ask you to do anything that would make you uncomfortable. The Spirit of God speaks to him and tells him that he sent men to him. Behold, three men are looking for you. Go, rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. The next day, or two days later, Peter does the unthinkable. He comes to the house of a Gentile. You were not allowed to enter a Gentile home if you were a Jew. An Orthodox Jew is unclean. Peter's still living as an Orthodox Jew. And he enters the home. And now he is beginning to grasp what has happened there. What is happening. What the meaning of the vision was. He says, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Amen. So Peter opens his mouth and preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his family. I can't prove it in the text, 
But if you read behind the text, you can know that Peter's praying, please, God, don't do anything. Because <laughs> I'll have to report it to the boys back in Jerusalem. And so God says, oh, yeah. And while Peter's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles and they begin extolling God and speaking with other tongues. And Peter looks and says, can we forbid water to these who receive the same gift as we did? So much for what Peter learned, that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. And he'll never ask you to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. I can really relate to that, that it's not true. A number of years ago, I was sitting in my office being pastoral. <laughs> when the phone rang, and I answered it, and a man with an Arabic accent said, can you supply someone from your church to come and debate at a religious studies debate in a religious studies class. I asked naively, who would we be debating? And she, he said, two, two witches, a Satanist, a pantheist, and a religious professor. <laughs> and I said, can you give me two or three days and call me back? I'll tell you then. And I had a man, and there was a man in our church, a young man who was a Wheaton graduate who was schooled in apologetics, and I knew exactly who to turn to. And I called him, and I said, there's a debate. I want you to represent us and go. And he said, no, I'll train you. You go. <laughs> and when he said that, the Spirit of God quickened to me that that was right. I was supposed to do it. Now, I was not a debater. I've never been a debater. I never had been in a formal debate. I debated the gospel in Miami for years and in other cities I lived in. But I've never been in a formal debate. And so this young man trained me for two weeks. And I, I told the man we, we would do it, and he told me some information about the, 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 the debate. And then I, for two weeks, fasted and prayed and worked with this young man to uh, defend the gospel. And then and the more I studied, the more I was convinced that I'm not the man for this job. I'm, I'm being honest. I, I, I was not, uh, I never felt that I could do it. My initial reaction had been to remind him of his schooling, but how many know when the Holy Spirit wants to use you, it doesn't matter what degrees you have or don't have, he's, he's looking for a vessel that's willing. And I was stupid enough to become willing. <laughs> I felt weak through the whole process. As I prepared, I felt my weakness and, and I tried every way my, mentally to get out of it. But the only thing the Holy Spirit brought to my mind continually as I prepared for this debate is 2 Corinthians 12, uh, which says, Paul says, my, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I said, thank you, Lord. I, I, can, I, I do have weakness, so I qualify for that promise. When I arrived on campus for the debate, by the way, the debate initially was going to be in a religious studies class. But people from the church, young people who were students, had made huge posters saying, come hear the debate, a fundamentalist versus broomstick. And they had to move it because of attendance. They had to move it from the religious study department to an auditorium that held over 500 people. When I got there, ABC cameras were stuck in my face wanting an interview. And uh, the police were there because the, the Satanist had sent, uh, had, had threat, death threats against his life, and he uh, sent a video instead. And then 
I asked the I asked the, the moderator if I could go last because each one of us was to bring a short 15-20 minute statement of our beliefs and I he agreed and so the witches started the two witches were Wiccan witches and they did their thing that was followed by the Jewish Satanist who didn't come because he said there was a death threat against him and instead sent a video which for 15 minutes blasphemed the holy name of Jesus. It was grievous. Then there was pantheist, a pantheist, which is the doctrine which identifies God with the universe, you know, or regards the universe as a manifestation of God. You are God, this chair is God, this pulpit is God. Then the religious professor spoke. I had hoped that she would defend the gospel and give me some support, but she didn't. She held up a Christian book critiquing the New Age and lashed out at Christians for their intolerance for not allowing New Age thought. And as she spoke, I was next. I was trembling inside. I was again overcome with a sense of weakness. Inwardly, I cried out to God as I was about to defend the gospel. And to the last minute as I rose to speak, I was still persuaded that I was the wrong person for this job. <laughs> But as I walked to the platform, I was po powerfully reminded of the words of Jesus in all three synoptic gospels. He had told his disciples, when they bring you to trial and deliver you, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit speaks through you. And that promise came powerfully. And I heard the Spirit whisper as I was walking up, to, uh, the microphone let me borrow your body and as I opened my mouth a torrent of words came out in rapid succession it was not human speech it was a divine speech it was utterance from above that was a demonstration of the spirit of power I take no boasting in this this was a complete work of the spirit of God and each it was each of the previous arguments that had been made to defend their view um, uh, were seen for what they were, the pitiful display of the weakness of man. A hush came over everyone there. It was evident to everybody in that auditorium, which was packed with four or five hundred people, there was a hush that came over and everyone was uh, overwhelmed by the greatness of the gospel. When I concluded my message, the questioning part started and, uh, you know, each of us could ask a panel member a question. Well, it quickly became them against me. And they gave me, they sent me many questions they peppered me with. But each time the wisdom of God overcame and did them in. No answer could they give. After the debate, many young people came up to me and said, I long ago uh, abandoned Christianity, but I had no idea it was this. I'm going to go investigate the Christian faith. It was a wonderful experience. But again, I had to be made uncomfortable because the Spirit, will, and I should have known this was not God because the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He'll never ask you to do anything. I learned that day that whenever the Spirit is giving complete freedom, He might guide us to places that are uncomfortable, but He will always supply what we need to confront unbelief and share the gospel. Amen? No wonder we often settle for the safe lands and rarely venture to launch out. 
trusting the Spirit of the Lord to be Lord. If we allow Him to be Lord, we will experience the liberty that He alone gives. This, this liberty is clearly seen in the fact that uh, the, the, work, the ongoing work of the Gospel and planting churches in the book of Acts demonstrates this principle. They completely trusted the Spirit of God to do the work in the planting of churches. And the book of Acts, you know, years ago I was handed a book. The title caught my attention. I was living in Alabama and someone gave me a book called uh, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. And it was a, written by an Anglican missionary from the Anglican Church who cited his own Anglican Church uh, and criticized them for the idea that they claimed Pauline authority for what they did, but they didn't do anything that Paul did. And especially his radical trust of the Holy Spirit. And one statement in particular crossed my mind and grabbed my attention in the book, and I took issue with it. Alan said, uh, Paul came to an area, preached the gospel, made converts, and organized the church, and left the area fully persuaded that the, the entire area had been evangelized. And I said, well, how could Paul believe that the entire uh, area was evangelized? And the answer is, he did because he knew it was his, not his responsibility to win that region, but the presence of the church guaranteed an ongoing ministry of the gospel in that region. He didn't have to wait. They didn't have to wait for Paul to come back every six months and preach the gospel, although Paul made visits to the churches. But the presence of the church guaranteed the presence of an ongoing gospel witness. That's why Alan's follow-up book, I love the title, it was called The Spontaneous Expansion of the Churches and talks about the spontaneity of the Spirit in planting churches. They did it different ways. They didn't have a cookie cutter. And they planted churches quickly because they entrusted the churches to the Holy Spirit who alone did the work. Amen? Amen. This comes across in a statement Luke makes in Acts 8. You know, Luke talks about the, the ongoing thrust of the gospel after Stephen was killed. And after Stephen was martyred, the church uh, expanded. They were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. So these churches were not started by Peter and James and John. They were started by saints who were scattered everywhere they went. And in Acts 8, it says, G. Campbell Morgan translated this. It says, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the gospel. And these weren't the apostles again. These were big people yeah. preaching the gospel. But... G. Campbell Morgan translated the word preaching there so that the better word is they went everywhere uh, gossiping the gospel. Gossiping the gospel. And I got a vision. All of a sudden I said, we're the church. We can do this. We're good at gossip. We can do this. I immediately had a vision of women hanging out their clothes on a laundry line going, have you heard the news? Jesus of Nazareth came, died, rose from the dead, and gossiping the gospel over a clothing line. 
So how does this work begin? It begins, the Spirit's first work is to give us a burden that breaks our hearts. I saw this firsthand when I lived in Miami in the 1970s. I was part of a church of God. Sandy Fado was in that church before she married Steve. And when I went to their Sunday night service, this church was located in Coconut Grove, which was the Haight-Ashbury of Miami. You know what Haight-Ashbury was in the 60s to California. That's what Miami, uh, Coconut Grove was in Miami. And it was pastored by a precious pastor named Joe Anderson. Steve remembers Joe Anderson. He was a great man of God. And one of the things that Joe did is he looked out his door and realized that outside his door were thousands of hippies, smoke-doping hippies, that needed the gospel. And, uh, and Joe began to reach out to them. And as he did, people got saved. And people started being converted. And the deacons went nuts because we came into that church with little clothing, you know, uh, with uh, no shoes, smelling from marijuana. And they complained to Joe. I don't know if it was Joe or somebody else, but they said, Jesus always catches his fish before he cleans them. And that's what Joe did. The Holy Spirit powerfully moved in those days. And folks, we need the Holy Spirit to do that again. We need a powerful manifestation. Somebody asked me in our church, they said, can you tell me what the Jesus movement was? I thought of a theological answer, but I said, that's when you could say Mesopotamia and 40 people were converted. Because people were getting converted by any and every means because the Spirit was in the ascendant place. But, are we willing to let the Spirit lead us even to places that might make us uncomfortable? Because the truth is, that's not a true statement that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman and will never allow you. I gave you two examples in Peter and me of examples uh, he is not. He is not unwilling to make us uncomfortable. The Spirit of God is the Spirit by which when, he is, when He's treated as Lord, then freedom occurs. Freedom to follow Him fully, not being bound by sacred tradition. Will you stand with me? Thank you, Father. How many of you want that freedom? Lift your hands to the Lord. Let's begin to worship. Take a minute and lift your hands to the Lord. Let's worship. Father, we thank you for the freedom that the Spirit has brought into the church. The freedom of the new covenant. The freedom to not only believe the new covenant, but to preach it. Lord, I pray for Harvest Church. I know uh, that this is a new covenant church. I thank you for the co new covenant that's been preached here. I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, for a release of your spirit with power. Lord, make us bold witnesses in this city. When we go out Tuesday night, when they go out in the nights, they're reaching out. I pray that you would bless them, break them, and distribute them to hungry multitudes. Lord gave me a word earlier for Harvest Church. I'll submit it to you. I saw that passage in Moses where Moses 
was overwhelmed by the workload. And the Lord said, I'm going to take of the spirit that's on you, Moses, and distribute it to others. And I saw the word distribution. That, and it's already happening at Harvest. This is not a word about this needs to happen. It's maybe a recognition of what is happening. The Spirit of the Lord has taken the Spirit that's on Tim. And it's not about what Tim preaches. It's about distribution. And, and so you have an important part in the distributing work of the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, Moses, you know, Joshua was worried about the fact that others were stepping into that role. And Moses said, would to God that all the Lord's people were prophets. Yeah. So Lord, thank you for taking of the Spirit on Tim yeah. and distributing it in the house. Thank you for distributing grace, distributing grace. Father, do this, Father, and let people step up. Let there be gospel witness and gospel powerful transform, tr transformation through the work of the gospel. Thank you, Father God, for causing your work to increase, not only through Tim, but through others in this house, not only through leaders. It's not about leaders doing it all, folks. It's about distribution. They weren't all leaders that came under Moses and got it. They were simple saints. Lord, do this in Jesus' name. I feel the Lord is healing somebody that has a knee problem. I don't know what it is, which knee, but the Lord is touching you if you have a knee problem. Thank you, Lord. Let's just wait in God's presence. I'm going to call some things out. Thank you, Lord.